viewed you if you had a loving wife and two amazing daughters. Your family seemed close on the outside, but on the inside, there was a very dark secret that would ultimately end your family. But little do you know, the end will be much more permanent than you ever expected. Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Diver. We take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi. Thank you so much for listening and watching. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're so happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water. We missed you, and thank you for coming back to take another deep dive into crime with us. Please make sure to check out our episode description and follow us on all social medias. You can also find my email in the episode description for any business inquiries. So now that we are entering December, I've decided that I'm going to start doing cases that mostly focus around the holidays. Now, I haven't been able to change my background yet because I only had this one up in one video, and it's so cute. So I'm gonna leave it up for one more video, but after this video, I'm gonna turn it into very all things Christmassy. But for now, we're going to do cases that center around the holidays. And I've already covered the John Benet Ramsey case on my podcast when I was doing audio only. So I'm probably not going to do that one again because it's a lot of information. But if you guys really want me to do it again, leave a comment below and let me know and I'll do my best. But that will be video only because I already have an audio version of that one. Today we're going to be talking about the brutal Christmas Eve murders of the Hulaver family. When I first heard about this case, I could not believe that somebody could be so cold and so callous and so brazen. I mean, it, it's like a monster did this. Only a monster could do something like this. But with that, let's get right into the case. The Hulaver family consisted of Jean and Ernest Hulaver and their daughters, Victoria and Izzy. Jean was born on December 8th, 1959 in Jonestown, Pennsylvania. She was described as being a nurturing, caring, and very giving woman, and everybody loved Jean. She became an x-ray technician at a local hospital because she really liked to help people and she wanted to make them feel comfortable. And she met Ernest around the 70s and the 80s. Ernest was born on April 23rd, 1960 in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Now not much is really known about his early life, but he did used to work at a trucking company, which is where he met Jean. They got married in the 80s and around that time they welcomed their first daughter, Victoria, who went by Vicky. She was born on December 27th, 1981. Vicky was described as being positive, always smiling, and she played field hockey in school. She decided to become a teacher after graduating and around that time she had a daughter named Madison with her boyfriend Frank. Eventually her and Frank split up and she ended up getting engaged to a man named Jeff she was living with him while raising her daughter, Madison. Elizabeth, who went by Izzy, was born on May 13th, 1987, and she was described as being a very nice girl. She had great energy. And she was just overall very sweet, kind, and caring, similar to her mother. By 2002, Vicky was 20 years old and she was living with her fiance and her baby, Madison, while Izzy was a 10th grader in high school living with her mother. Now, unfortunately, Jean and Ernest actually ended up splitting up after 20 years of marriage. Ernest ended up moving back home three hours away in Jonestown, Pennsylvania with his parents and his brother, Scott. After the divorce, he had to leave the home. Vicky decided to move back home with her mother and her sister and brought her daughter with her for a little bit because she just wanted to be there for her mom and her sister. It was a very hard time for them. Their family had literally split up and now their dad was three hours away. So Victoria really wanted to be there and help them out. And at this time, they became very close to each other. I mean, at this point, they were really all they had and they were like each other's support system. And this made them really, really close around this time. But little did they know just how much they were going to need each other pretty soon. 
On December 24, 2002, Christmas Eve, Jean, Victoria, and Izzy were set to go to Jean's parents' house in order to spend Christmas Eve with them. And they were gonna go there, spend the night, wake up together Christmas morning, and just hang out. That's actually a tradition that me and my family do. We always go to my grandparents' house on Christmas Eve in our pajamas, and then we spend the night, and then we stay all day the next day. So I can only imagine how excited they were just to spend some time with their grandparents and parents. But after a certain amount of time passed, Jean's parents noticed that they hadn't heard from her in a while and that they hadn't shown up yet. Now, they knew that they were pretty far. I mean, Jean's parents lived about two and a half hours away from where her and the girls lived. So they knew that it was gonna take them a minute to get there, but it just wasn't like Jean to not check in, let them know where they were or that they were on the way. And pretty soon it started getting really late and the girls still hadn't shown up. So by this point, Jean's mother, Marianne, knew that it was time to call 911. So she decided to call the police department in Middletown, which is where Jean lived with the girls. And she asked the police to perform a welfare check on their home. But the police were like, eh, it's Christmas Eve. I'm sure they're probably just on the way or maybe they got distracted. Just wait until the morning. So Marianne says, okay, fine, I'll wait until the morning. But when the morning comes and they still haven't shown up, she calls the police department again and says something is seriously wrong. Please check on my daughter and my granddaughters. So at 7 a.m. on Christmas morning, a sergeant goes out to the Hulaver home to check on the girls and see if they're okay. But when he gets there and knocks on the door, no one answers. The police officer decides to go around the back of the house to the garage and he sees that there's a car there. So someone has to be there, but where are they? Once the officer sees the car, he also sees a broken window indicating that someone must have broken in. So the officer decides to knock on a door next to the broken window in the garage. But as he knocks on it, it just opens on its own as if it hadn't even been latched. Now at this point, the officer knows that something is going on. So he goes inside, walks down a hallway that leads to the kitchen, and it was there that he found the body of 43-year-old Jean Hulaver. She was lying in a pool of blood and appeared to have been shot in the head. Immediately, the officer calls for backup because he doesn't know if whoever did this to Jean was still in the house. Once other officers arrive, they decide to clear the house and make sure that the threat is gone. And as officers are clearing the first floor of the house to make sure whoever did this is still not inside, they hear the cries of a baby coming from upstairs. So the officers go upstairs and they find baby Madison, but she's not alone. She's in the arms of her mother, Vicki Hulaver, who was on the floor dead lying in a pool of blood, also appearing to have been shot in the head. And Madison was just sitting there crying in her mother's arms, not knowing what was going on, of course, and Vicky was just on the ground. Officers immediately take baby Madison and take her to an ambulance waiting outside and make sure she's not hurt. She was a little dehydrated, but she was okay and made a full recovery. They found that baby Madison had been laying in her dead mother's arms for over 30 hours. Could you imagine being a police officer walking up and seeing a scene like that of a baby lying in her dead mother's arms crying. I feel like tragedies could not be written better than walking into something like that. Police then decide to clear the second floor to make sure nobody else is there. But once they go inside Izzy's room, they find her in her bed and she's dead from a gunshot wound to her left eye. It was clear that she was shot at close range because there were burn marks around her eye as well as on her hands, indicating that she tried to grab the gun before she was shot. Police could not believe the scene that they walked into. I mean, to find these three women dead and a baby crying in their mother's arms, it was absolutely horrible. Jean, who was 43, Vicky, who was 20, and Izzy, who was only 15, were all dead from a single gunshot wound. 
Police found that the phone line had been cut, probably to stop the girls from calling for help. They also noticed that nothing was stolen from the home, indicating that this was a very personal attack. So it wasn't like it was a robbery gone wrong or, oh, they caught me stealing from them, so I had to kill them. This was personal and this was very targeted. So police decided to go around and ask the neighbors if they had seen anybody around the house that may have looked suspicious in the days leading up to the murders. And they said that they did in fact see a man who was there at the home as soon as the day before the murders. And police found out that this was a man named Stephen Chapman. Stephen Chapman was a local antique dealer and some people believed that he was actually having an affair with Jean because he was a married man and he had been coming around the house a lot. So police decided to question him and figure out who this guy was and why he was there. But Steven said, no, I'm an antique dealer. Jean was just selling some old things from the house. It's nothing like that at all. And they were able to corroborate his story and he ended up having a rock solid alibi. So he was cleared as a suspect. Police then decided to look at baby Madison's father and Vicky's ex, a man named Frank, and they wanted to see if maybe he could have had something to do with what happened. About a year before, Vicky actually was living with him while she was raising baby Madison, and they had a few domestic disputes that kind of got out of hand sometimes. And the police had been called multiple times to their home. So there was a history of some possibly violent behavior between them, but Frank also had an alibi that ended up checking out. So police decided to look at another one of Vicky's ex-boyfriends, a man named Turner Higgins. Now it was said that Turner had been trying to get back together with Vicky because he really wanted to be in baby Madison's life. And this had a lot to do with the fact that he thought he was Madison's father. Turns out Vicky had actually been dealing with Turner and Frank around the same time that Madison was born. So her paternity was somewhat in question, but Turner believed that Madison was his and he wanted to be in her life and he got super attached to her but once him and Vicky broke up she took Madison away with her to live with her new fiance Jeff. Turner had been trying to get back with Vicky for a while he had been calling her texting her trying to get a hold of her but was unsuccessful. Police believe that maybe Turner killed Vicky and her family and left baby Madison alive for a reason because he thought that she was his. But this didn't really make a whole lot of sense to them and they kind of figured that, well, if he really wanted baby Madison, why would he have left her there? I mean, wouldn't he have just taken her with him? And he too had a rock solid alibi, so they ruled him out as well. And just to be clear, we now know that Madison's father was in fact Frank. Police didn't really have many other suspects to look into, so they decided that they were going to look at Ernest and figure out what he could have done and what he may know. I mean, after all, he was pretty disgruntled over the divorce. He had to move away three hours away from his family, and he really didn't get anything from the divorce. So he had every reason to be disgruntled. But once police found out why Ernest and Jean were getting a divorce in the first place, they knew that they really had to look into him. They found out the reason Jean left Ernest was because Vicky and Izzy had come to her telling her that their father had been taking advantage of them sexually for years. And as soon as they told Jean this, she immediately kicked Ernest out and was absolutely done with him. Now, a lot of people look at this as like a really great thing. And it's honestly sad that this is not the norm because so many mothers sometimes don't believe their daughters or they take the man's side over their own kids, which is really heartbreaking. But Jean was not like that at all. As soon as her daughters told her about this, she immediately left Ernest and was done with him, kicked him out, 
wanted nothing to do with him, filed a restraining order, pressed charges, like she was not playing around with him. And Ernest ended up being arrested for the sexual assault charges against his own kids. But he was let out on $100,000 bail and he went back home to Jonestown, Pennsylvania with his family and his brother. I can't imagine how guilty Jean probably felt, the fact that that was going on right under her nose in her own home and she had no idea. But as soon as she found out, she handled it in the best way she could by believing her daughters and kicking that piece of crap to the curb. Because who does that? Like jail, electric chair, goodbye, done, disgusting. Once Ernest moved back home around July of 2002, just months before the murders, he was very mad at Jean for leaving him and believing the girls over him, which is disgusting because how are you not more upset at the fact that you did this to your daughters and you probably did permanent damage to them emotionally and mentally and said you're more mad that your wife left you? His brother Scott even went on to say that Ernest was so mad at Jean, he even threatened to kill her and told him that he wanted to do it because he couldn't believe that she left him. So after finding all of this out after the murders took place, police knew that they had to look at Ernest very closely. And when they questioned him, he was very uncooperative. He didn't want to answer anything. And when he did, he wouldn't give straight answers. He was just being very difficult to police. He also wouldn't let them search his home, which they felt like was a bit of a red flag because this is your family. I mean, why do you not want to find out what happened to them? Why are you not cooperating? Not to mention officers said that Ernest didn't even seem sad that his family was gone. I mean, this is your wife of 20 years and your daughters, your children. And you don't even care that they were murdered in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve. It was like he could have cared less. I mean, even if you were mad at them for whatever your stupid reasons were, you should still be sad at the fact that they literally died. And they just noticed that he didn't care at all. When police asked him where he was that night, he said he was out hunting with his brother Scott. So he was like, I have an alibi. I was not there. I was three hours away in Jonestown. So police decided to bring in Ernest's brother Scott to ask him where they were. And they hoped that maybe they could tug at his heartstrings a little bit and get him to feel guilty because they knew that there was something wrong with Ernest. So they tried to get to him through his brother and they showed his brother Scott pictures of all three of the girls' bodies as well as the crime scene, hoping that it would get him to break down emotionally and feel guilty and just tell them the truth. And it worked. Scott decided that he was going to spill his guts to the officers and tell them what really happened on the night of Christmas Eve, 2002. Now on the night of December 23rd, Christmas Eve Eve, Scott was out with Ernest at a bar and they were talking and drinking. Ernest was trying to get Scott to drive him all the way to Middletown to Jean's house in order to get his dog back. Keep in mind, there's a restraining order against him so he's not allowed around them or the house, period, but he wanted his dog back. Little did he know the dog had actually passed away months before, but because he wasn't in contact with Jean, he didn't know this. Now Scott said he was not driving him, there was no way in hell, way too far, it was almost three hours. But over time, as they continued drinking, he was finally able to get Scott to agree to drop everything and drive him there that night. So they set out on the road driving drunk, which is so disgusting and so selfish in every way, shape or form. And they were seen on surveillance at a gas station on the way there. So it was confirmed that they were in fact on the way to Middletown. Once they got there, Scott said that Ernest told him to park down the street and he did. And Ernest went in the back seat 
got dressed in all black, put on a ski mask and gloves, and armed himself with his uncle's gun and got out and went to the house. We can only assume after that that Ernest went in there and killed his entire family. Police believe that Ernest got inside the house by breaking a window in order to unlock the door before going inside, seeing Jean in the kitchen making her morning coffee, and shot her. By this point, it was around four in the morning on Christmas Eve. It's believed that Vicky upstairs heard the shot and knew instantly that something was wrong. And she grabbed baby Madison and tried to go into Izzy's room in order to protect her. But before she got to her room, she was met with her father in the hallway. And it was there that Ernest shot Vicky while she was holding Madison. And police believe the way that Vicky was laying when they found her, that she was trying to protect Madison from the bullet. After this, police believe that Ernest went inside Izzy's room where there was a struggle because Izzy tried to grab the gun as indicated by her marks, but she was unsuccessful. And it was there that her father shot her in the eye. Scott said that after 10 to 15 minutes, Ernest returned to the truck and yelled at him to drive away instantly. And Scott did so. And eventually they got to a wooded area and Ernest told him to stop there and he ditched all of the evidence, his clothes, his masks, his gun, everything. And he coached Scott on what to say if police asked him where they were. Their alibi was that they went hunting. Scott agreed and he said, okay, whatever you want me to tell them. And then they went back home to Jonestown like nothing happened. Scott decided to bring police to this wooded area where they found all the evidence that Ernest had dumped. And it was there that they were pretty much able to corroborate Scott's story, that Ernest was the one who did this. Now, Scott was actually arrested and charged with first degree murder and burglary charges. And even though he didn't pull the trigger or actually go inside the house, he knew what Ernest was going to do and he drove him there to do it. And then he helped cover it up and he did absolutely nothing to stop him, which is crazy. I mean, how do you just let your brother do that and not even think twice about it? Scott was sentenced to 25 years in prison with the possibility of parole after 12. Ernest, on the other hand, was charged with three counts of first degree murder, as well as the sexual assault charges against his daughters that he faced before the murders. Because remember, he was out on bail when these crimes took place. So he was still having those charges to deal with as well. The trial began in August of 2004, and Ernest's defense team was actually able to move the trial away from their town in Pennsylvania because they didn't want the jury pool to be tainted. A lot of people heard about this case and were very mad about it and hated Ernest's guts for what he did to his kids and his wife. So they had to move it out of town in order to get more of a fair trial. Prosecution believed that Ernest killed his wife because he was angry at her for leaving him because of what his daughters had said about what he had done to them. And they believe that he killed his daughters so that way they couldn't testify in the upcoming trial for the sexual assault charges that he was facing against them. Scott testified in the trial against his brother and retold the story about what happened the night that the murders took place on Christmas Eve. And he seemed actually very remorseful. He was crying, he was upset. He said he felt like he was being abused by his brother and was kind of coerced into helping him. And that he was scared that if he didn't, that he didn't know what was gonna happen to him. Meanwhile, Ernest is sitting over there, blank faced, emotionless, not caring at all. The prosecution also brought in the evidence that Scott showed them that Ernest had ditched after the murders and they were able to match the firearm to belonging to their uncle. It definitely seems like more than a coincidence. It seems like Ernest was definitely the one who did this. Fellow inmates also testified against Ernest saying that he was actually trying to hire a hitman from prison in order to kill Madison's father, Frank. And the reason he wanted to do this was because he wanted to make it look like Frank had taken his own life because he was the one 
who killed the three girls. Now, once an inmate got word that Ernest was planning this, he ended up telling a guard who got an undercover agent to come in and pose as a hitman. Ernest was talking to this undercover agent having no clue. And while they were speaking and making these arrangements in order to kill Frank, Ernest says, once you're done, leave a note at the scene that says he killed Jean, Vicky, and Izzy. So it was almost like Ernest was trying to pin the murders on Frank and make it look like that's why Frank took his own life because of these murders. The undercover agent also testified in court and said that, yeah, I met with Ernest and he told me to do all of this. But the defense tried to say, okay, we probably can't deny that because it was very clear that it happened, but they tried to change Ernest's reasoning for doing it. They said that Ernest was trying to kill Frank because he was trying to avenge the death of his wife and his daughters because he was so angry. But if he was trying to do that, then why leave that note? I mean, why would that matter? It just didn't make any sense. And nobody was buying that and neither did the jury. Ernest was convicted of three counts of first degree murder for the murders of Jean, Vicky, and Izzy Hulaver. And he was sentenced to death. Now he was acquitted on the sexual assault charges against his daughters because he literally killed the witnesses. I mean, they weren't there anymore to testify against him, which is kind of what he wanted all along. But given how things unfolded, it's pretty clear that Ernest probably most likely 100% did do what the girls were saying he did to them because why else would he have taken their lives? Clearly he wanted to keep whatever he had done a secret, which is why he did this. I mean, Jean didn't leave her 20 year marriage for no reason. She obviously had a very good reason to do that. Ernest trying to kill them in order to silence them just made things even louder and really shone a light on what he really did. Ernest did not care pretty much through the entire trial. He showed no emotion whatsoever. And he even tried to get Jean's life insurance money after he was the one who murdered her. Like that's not how it works. I don't know why he even thought he could do that, but of course, he didn't get it, like you're going to jail. In January of 2014, a Pennsylvania Superior Court actually ruled that the sexual assault charges, although Ernest wasn't convicted of them, were going to stay on his record because the only reason he wasn't convicted was because he killed the witnesses. You don't just get that expunged from your record. I mean, he doesn't, he was ineligible for that. So they still stayed on his record because they're pretty sure he definitely did it. Ernest has tried to appeal his sentence a few times, but of course he's been denied every single time. He's currently 63 years old and is still on death row to this day. I mean, he's likely never getting out of prison. I mean, it's sad that he was even given bail in the first place, given the severity of the sexual assault charges and the fact that his girls were terrified of him. I mean, he should have never been left out after those charges. He should have never been allowed to post bail, but he was, and this is what he did once he was out. Madison went to live with her father, Frank, who was found to have absolutely nothing to do with the murders. She's graduated from community college and plans on becoming a registered nurse. She also played field hockey in high school, just like her mother. And her family says that she's becoming more and more like Vicky every single day. This is such a tragic story to tell and it's a huge loss to have three girls that were so bright and so empowered and doing what they could to emotionally support each other be taken away by the man that was supposed to love and protect them. And he was the one that they needed protecting from. But with that, we're gonna go ahead and wrap up today's episode. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you so much for listening and watching and I hope to see you in the water soon.